Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. I think it's fair to say that we are in the midst of a Scottish revival. You can't talk about British politics without broaching the Scottish question of self-determination. This passion for things Scottish may have started with Mel Gibson's movie Braveheart, which came out in 1995. The following year, 1996, was the 250th anniversary of the Battle of Culloden, a particularly bloody event that cost the lives of over 4,000 Highlanders and triggered the legendary clearances. But it may have started earlier with the beginnings of the Outlander effect. Diana Gabaldon's novels have, for almost 30 years now, entertained countless readers. The sensationally daring television series based on her books has enthralled even more millions, and suddenly we're all talking about 18th century Scotland. And let's not mention the continuing popularity of plaid and fashion, or of Scottish whiskey. This could be because there are Scots all around us. The size of the Scottish diaspora is hard to measure, but 10 years ago, Scottish leaders were quoting 100 million people, a figure that would probably include me, a 116th Scot. Scotland itself has about 5 million people, and that number has been static, remarkably, for over a century. With me today is a Canadian writer who lives and breathes Scotland and Canada. Ken McGugan has written many books on the topic, and I welcome him today to talk about his latest, The Flight of the Highlanders and the Making of Canada. It is published in the Patrick Crean Editions, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. Ken McGugan, welcome to the studio. Well, thanks very much. It's great to be here. I should say welcome back to Ryerson. You graduated from the journalism school here many years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Every time I wander onto the campus, I uh, get a little frisson. It's changed a lot. Oh, it's almost unrecognizable. I can see the quad, though. If I can find the quad, I I can center myself. It's hidden back there. You're the witness to yesterday today. Tell me what happened on August 9th, 1853. Let me see. Uh, if I flash back, can I figure that out? Yeah, actually, I do know. A ship called the Sillery uh, pulled up uh, just off the Isle of Skye, and uh, men got off the ship and went ashore in an area called Noydart in Scotland and began um, hauling uh, people uh, on board. Now, some of those people said, okay, we'll, we'll go. Uh, some other people said, no, we don't want to go. But those people in April had uh, heard from uh, a widow, um, Marjorie MacDonnell, who had told them, look, there's no, no recourse. You're going. First of all, she told them, you're going to Australia. Then she changed that and said, no, you're going to Canada. And uh, don't think you're not going. So these men off the ship got together with some other men who came uh, from uh, farther inland and started uh, dragging people out of their homes where their their ancestors had lived uh, for centuries, dragging them out, uh, setting fire to the thatch roofs, breaking down the, uh, the timbers, uh, throwing furniture out the door, and basically uh, forcibly evicting these people who had uh, lived there, as I say, for, well, their ancestors uh, had lived there for some centuries. So these were the, uh, the, the Highland clearances at their most extreme. Those clearances happened over 100 years after the Battle of Culloden. Yeah, actually, they went on uh, gradually uh, escalating after the Battle of Culloden. Um, what happened was uh, that battle, the Highland clans were decimated, uh, and that left uh, the people... Uh, most of whom were farmers, 
uh, essentially defenseless. You see, prior to that, if there was any trouble, if the landlords or if anybody started trying to evict them for the sake of greater profits, uh, the clans the clans would rise up and say, I'm sorry, this is not going to happen. And they were tremendous warriors. But uh, Culloden wiped, uh, wiped out the clan system, essentially, and uh, left the people vulnerable so that they could then uh, be cleared off the land, whether they liked it or not. And sent to Canada. A lot of them were sent, a great many were sent to Canada. You see, initially, some of them started to leave on their own when they saw the writing on the wall because it was so much more profitable to bring sheep in, never mind these tenant farmers who were paying small rents. Yeah. Let's make a lot more profit by bringing in the sheep, clear the people off, and, uh, and away we go. So, yeah, that's, uh, that, that was basically uh, the motivation and how it unfolded. Over the over the course, early on, the people, some of their tax men, their leaders, T A C K S M M E N, began to realize, okay, we see what's happening. Let's get out of here now. They started to leave, um, and then gradually, those who said, "No, I'm going to stay," well, then the landlords kind of increased the the pressure and started uh, hauling them off. Now, you give your book a fresh and vivid perspective by pointing out that the Scots were the first of a long series of refugees to Canada. What do you mean? Yeah, that's, uh, that is a, I, I see it as a key insight uh, of the book and a key motivating factor. Um, if you look at uh, the history of Canada, you, okay, you have the indigenous peoples here for several thousand years. You have the French coming in. Um, early on in the 1600s, uh, but they, they are refugees. Yeah, they came with their own will. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they came and began, you know, colonizing mm-hmm. Quebec and and Acadia. Uh, but the first people to be forcibly evicted, to be thrown out against their will and hauled off. You mentioned 1853, something like well, there were 332 people hauled off on that ship, the Sillery, brought to Quebec, and dumped out. Okay, here you are. Here's your new home. Well, you know, that's that's a refugee situation, and that went on. Well, starting in about the 1770s, 1780s, and then it kind of uh, increased in intensity uh, through the uh, through the mid 19th century. You have other refugees that will follow the uh, the uh, Underground Railroad, for example, out of the United States. You have <clears throat> Jewish refugees finding their place in Canada, um, facing, of course, facing serious um, difficulties uh, in terms of discrimination. Uh, and you bring it right up to the Syrian refugees. You talk about the Vietnamese uh, refugees, the boat people of the late 1970s, exactly. and now the refugees from Syria. It's been wave after wave. Yes. And, and uh, what I suggest in the book, perhaps even argue a little bit, is that um, the preponderance of Scottish refugees helped to shape Canada's welcoming ethos uh, in that they arrived so early and in such numbers. So, okay, so then you say, well, your, your descendants understand the refugee situation. And that, um, you know, that that's so pervasive because, you know, there are five, pe- five million Canadians of Scottish ancestry. So, I mean, they all have that in their, or a great many of them have that in their history. And so let's, let's just put it this way, that Canadians, partly as a result, are more welcoming of refugees than some 
countries or peoples that I could name. An interesting aspect of your book is the identification of a number of uh, societies in the highlands uh, that were actually dedicated to forcing people out. You mentioned in particular the Highland and Island Emigration Society, not immigration, emigration. <laughs> Can you tell me more about that organization? Or are there others like it? I mean, the Highland and Island Emigration Society. Yeah. You never see that. Oh, that was this is a push society. Yeah, that was early on. Yeah, yeah that, that that's exactly right. It emerged. Um, well, if you go back to 1792, what was called the Year of the Sheep. When the people uh, who were being evicted were uh, decided to stand up, and they uh, set off a great stampede of sheep that they were supposedly bringing in, they kind of sent them back. But then the landlords uh, got together with the military and uh, came in and made the point that uh, uh, the landlords have the law and the force of the law on their side. And it was out of things like that that you have the emergence of the Highland and Islands uh, Immigration Society um, that are saying, okay, some of them now, you see, it's such a complicated story. I hate to generalize. So in some cases, you know, the society would say, okay, we're going to pay your fare and uh, you're going to get off and you're going to have uh, uh, 10 pounds of oats, <laughs> which is <clears throat> literally sometimes what they had. Um, so this is our generous offer to you. It's either that or, you know, have your house pulled down around your ears, basically. But These were privately funded organizations, presumably by the big landlord. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Get, them, get the people out. Get the people out because we want to make money. <laughs> uh, so it's no new thing. I mean, in a way, or it's a, it's a very old thing very that still thing. goes on. This is your 11th book of nonfiction. You've also written three books of fiction. And this is your third on Scotland's relationship with Canada. I'll remind our listeners that you wrote How the Scots Invented Canada in 2010 and Celtic Lightning, How the Scots and Irish Created a Canadian Nation in 2015. How has your thinking on this subject progressed over the past decade? So first I did that, How the Scots Invented Canada, and, and uh, I'm not an academic historian, as I hardly have to tell you. I uh, unfold it through the people. Um, and through individuals. I, 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 I show the story that way and contextualize a little bit, but that's basically it. Now, in that book, basically I was um, talking about uh, individuals, leaders. Scotland sent a lot of leaders early and gained control in particular of uh, the fur trade, which was so crucial, as you well know, to the development of, of Canada. So they, they led that push, and they subsequently led uh, the uh, uh, establishing of the uh, railway across the country. There's a guy called McDonald. Uh, yeah, that guy. Vaguely Scottish him. guy. Uh, George Brown, <laughs> yeah. Alexander Mackenzie. The, the first two prime ministers of the country are Scot born in Scotland. That's right. George yes. Brown, born in Scotland. Yes, they're, I was at his house not so long ago. Well, I went past the street. it. There down you the go. What made these Scots so motivated? Well, uh, they were uh, uh, they were smart. Um, and, and they were looking for a better life for themselves, and they were able to find it here. They were very ambitious in and of themselves and uh, just wanted, you know, they were self, self-driven, self self-made men for the most part, although certainly you've already mentioned. 
Do you think there was a cohesion inside the Scottish society that somehow propelled them? You know, that that is interesting. If you if you go back to the Scottish Enlightenment yes. uh, that emerged uh, there in the later 1700s, well, of course, that goes back to the early emergence of literacy uh, in Scotland, which, which had literacy before virtually anybody else. That's why the Enlightenment came and flourished, and you had people like Adam Smith and— Adam uh, Ferguson— yeah, all kinds of highly educated people early. And and you had this spreading out into the society. So then in Scotland, you had a great number of well-educated men who didn't have anywhere to go. But wait a minute, they, they look over to Canada and they say, there seems to be a lot of opportunity over there, a lot more room. So, so that, I think, was... Uh, well, you know, they came catapulting out. Although it does get complicated, and you know this story probably better than I do, you know, John A. MacDonald. <clears throat> if you go to Rogart in the Highlands, you, there's a cairn there that, that, that where his grandfather was cleared. The, the cairn made of rocks, it's made of rocks uh, taken from his croft. So now it's turned into a cairn. His grandfather was cleared. He went into the town of Dornock. Then MacDonald's father went down to Glasgow trying to make a go of it, and uh, MacDonald was born there, but his father couldn't make anything happen in Glasgow, so came to Kingston, and it was there that John A. grew up, and, and there's a tremendous Scottish community. Yes. So he was well-educated and ambitious and uh, was able to do what he did. Your, your previous book on uh, how the Scots invented Canada includes people that uh, some people may not remember. Doug, uh, Tommy Douglas, for example, is a Scot. Uh, yeah, sure. The, the number one man in Canadian history, according <laughs> to the turn of the century poll, uh, the creator of Medicare. Yeah, tremendous. Um, he, w- he was born over there, as you say, and came early to, uh, to Winnipeg, which is where he grew up. Trained as a as a boxer and all kind very colorful figure and, yeah, Medicare. I mean, what would we do without that? Another Scottish invention. Your list also includes a guy called Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Absolutely. What I makes mean, him a Scot? Well, he's Elliot. He, the whole name Elliot that he always insisted on saying, and you and I'm sure you probably recall during one of his elections when he was attacked on those grounds, and you know he basically told uh, les separatistes. Oh, uh, you know, got off my back. His mom was a Scot. Exactly, yes, and she was a country dancer, Scottish <laughs> country dancer. So that presence is always there, isn't it? It's there in a lot of people that people don't realize. How do you interpret the Scottish mindset? <laughs> is there, is there, like you, I'm coming around to this idea of the Scots inheriting a notion of tolerance, perhaps as a result of being the product of refugees. But what is, the, is the, what is, do you think, the Scottish mindset? That's a difficult question. I, I take it, uh, and I look at history through a genealogical perspective, if you will, or rather, okay, if you're looking at your personal genealogy, this is the way, um, you don't say, oh, okay, my ancestor arrived in 1750, and uh, that's as far back as I need to go, because, wait a minute, you, you genealogists go back a lot farther than that. You know, they go back, okay, well, what was happening in France uh, in the 1700s that caused that ancestor to leave? So that, to me, 
I think I think historians have 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 um, have taken a, a a mistaken turn oftentimes in that they shouldn't be following the geographers that say Canada ceases at uh, Newfoundland if you're looking east, uh, and that's the end of it. Fair and that's fair enough geographically, but historically, historically we have roots elsewhere. And if you pursue those roots, okay, then if, if you look at um, uh, the values that emerge out of those societies, and if some of those values, for example, I look at independence, a sense of independence. I mean, has anybody got a, a, a more ferocious sense of independence than the Scots? Or what about democracy? Again, another I would say Canadian value. Of course, we're getting into dangerous territory here. But these ideas, if you leave from Scotland or any or France or anywhere else and you come here and you come here early enough, you're carrying these values. You don't arrive without values. It's the same as refugees coming in today. They don't arrive completely valueless. They bring certain attitudes and, uh, and views. So it's the same back then, but it was early enough back then that it had a shaping and pervasive influence. Fairness? Yeah. Uh, acceptance of others? Do you think, do you think there's there? Absolutely. I think uh, a sense of justice? All these things. A lot of, some people have commented in the past that a lot of our jurisprudence, for example, is very much borrowed from the Scottish Enlightenment. These are the people, by the way, that I have not seen on Outlander. <laughs> um, I want to see uh, Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson and, and all these people. I have not seen them yet. Um, but the Scots, I mean, as you said earlier, the Scots, I mean, had four universities at, at the point of Culloden. Um, this is a remarkably literate society. And they created universities across the country here. If you look at the heritage of all the universities going across the... Simon Fraser University. Yes. I mean, and, you, and you've got Calgary and, and in Edmonton, and of course Dalhousie and McGill. McGill. Yes. <laughs> James yes, McGill. Of course. You Scott know, himself, yes. He, University of Toronto. Yes. John Strawn. I mean, all these uh, universities are created by the Scots. And of course, when they set it up, they set it up like the universities back home. Indeed. You know, so that's how, that's how it happens. That's how the influence spreads. I, w- I want to ask you about a method that you've used now, and especially in this book. But I've seen other historians use it, including academic historians. And that's the idea of placing themselves in the narrative. I, I call it a form of presence narrative, uh, where you weave your historical uh, descriptions with suddenly with uh, uh, a snapshot of you in the moment. Sometimes your wife appears in the book, uh, including snapshots uh, of you too. But this is in the middle of a book of history, Ken McGugan. How do you justify that? What are you? What What is the intention of your technique there? Yes, yes, that, that, that's a good question. When I talk about flight of the Highlanders, I talk about publicly uh, dragging history into the twenty first century. That, that, to me, is, is what's going on. Yes, uh, myself, I, I am present. I'm present as a witness, not as a principal actor, as a witness. Uh, to, and it's a way of bringing history alive because it brings it into the present. So, for example, the, the situation we talked about earlier, uh, the Noidart clearances. It's a, um, we were on a ship. And uh, f- suddenly I found myself in that location. So that was an ideal uh, perspective to bring 
that history alive uh, for people. And that's what it's all about. And it, it's actually got quite important ramifications. It does. Uh, this. It does. Why um, do you need to do this? You need to do this because of the prevailing ethos today. Which is? Which is? It has to do with um, coming out of uh, theorizing vis-a-vis creative nonfiction. And there are, I, I see myself as a creative nonfiction writer, but there are a couple of different streams that uh, feed into that. There's the stream that goes back to Montaigne, which is the memoir theme. And there's the, uh, the um, methodology brought forward by the new journalists in, in the 60s that's more research-based but also lively. Um, and there's a personal presence in both those. In particular, the memoir approach has taken over the... Um, all the all the most powerful positions in terms of um, uh, the establishment of uh, of writing in the universities and in the institutions that fund writers and part of that has to do the thinking is um, uh, creative fiction creative nonfiction the hallmark thereof is personal presence. Even as even a, a brilliant writer like Farley Mowat, who who did who did put himself in, he did. But take Pierre Burton, okay, his voice is present, but he, you never see him present as a witness in the in the way. But do you think that readers today need your presence in the book in order to guide them to a historical reflection? I'm I'm just wondering. Yes, I do. I'm just wondering about this. I'm wondering about the state of pop history, of popular history in Canada, which has a long and proud uh, Okay, past. there's a lot of, lot of worry. I You're, regard, worried? You're worried? I'm worried. I, I regard it as social history, you know, as distinct, say, from military history mm-hmm. or political history. So uh, it's, more, it's more social history that I see myself writing. Yes. Um, and, uh, well, just this morning I was reading about a writer who says... I've been working on a biography, uh, and I'm just not going to do it anymore because uh, there's nothing in it. Yeah, I, I, I can get it published. I have a contract, but I pulled out of the contract because it's it's going to sink like a stone if, if I send it out there. And um, I don't know if you saw Ken White's piece uh, not so long ago, arguing about uh, arguing that fact-based uh, um, works fact-based, heavily researched works, can't get uh, any granting uh, uh, monies from uh, various institutions, starting with the Canada Council and so forth. And of course, people people fight back against that, but there's definitely, in my opinion, some truth to what he says. So that um, the <clears throat> the ethos is, has, has changed. You're talking about non-academic writers getting funding to do creative nonfiction, yeah. right? Just to be specific, there are funds for academics, academics, uh, but not for... That's a different world, yeah, right? that's a different world, yeah. That's the, that's the shirt grants? Yes. Fabulous. I mean, fabulous. I mean... If you can get one. Um, and, uh, and, and then you can pursue your, your, your writing in any way, shape, or form. You've got a regular salary coming in. Okay, I'm, I'm not of that... Uh, I'm not working in that tradition. You trained in journalism, as we said at the outset. You worked at the Toronto Star, the Montreal Star, and you were at the Calgary Herald. You worked for 25 years in newspapers before making the radical decision to, train, to change track. 
Um, why did you suddenly decide to leave journalism and dedicate yourself to works of history? It wasn't quite that simple. Okay, I'm sure not. I'm <laughs> no, sure not. No, tell, it's tell, not. Tell us. So I, I did indeed work for over 20 years as a journalist. I trained as a journalist here at Ryerson, and I worked for over 20 years. Uh, and a, a lot of that was at the Calgary Herald as the books editor. So I was able to talk to writers, and uh, immerse, I was immersed in the world of books all the way along. But my own history goes back to age 15, I knew I wanted to be a writer, and that's why I was the only only male in the typing class. Because, <laughs> you know, I knew right away. I thought I was a, uh, well, I started off as a fiction writer. So I was writing fiction, and, and I went on doing that, and I published a couple of stories. Then I was on uh, working as a fire lookout in the, in the Canadian Rockies, writing fiction, and I realized, uh-oh, I'm not going to be able to make a living doing this so that's when I went back to came back here to Ryerson, and I I put in my three years here at Ryerson and, and went ahead. But even even then, when I started working as a journalist, I always saw myself first and foremost as a writer. So um, I and I published several books, three three novels and one nonfiction book, while I was working as a journalist. And so it wasn't a sudden break, but what happened was Conrad Black uh, uh, took over the uh, the Calgary Herald, and he decided that uh, well, he's he's got a uh, maybe I shouldn't quite go there. He might sue me for for, <laughs> for 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 the path I'm going down. In any case, we ended up having a big strike, and I never went back after that. Uh, you see, at that point too, I had I had one a. Uh, a fellowship to University of Cambridge in England uh, to uh, had three months to work on a project. Okay, I was going to write another novel, uh, Model A.S. Byatt, Possession, which is contemporary story framing historical story. Mm. So I was there in, uh, in Cambridge, and I started researching the historical side about this explorer, John Ray. His papers were there. And when I looked at it, I said, holy, holy smoke, <laughs> this guy's been ripped off. And that upset me. And so... He's been forgotten. Well, worse. Worse than that. So, um, I mean, his achievements have been credited to others. Yeah. That made me angry. And I set the novel aside because people could say, okay, um, this is just fiction. We don't have to take it too seriously. So I wrote it as nonfiction, Fatal Passage, which was, you know, a big transformative thing for me. It won five awards and did very well. And so it was, and there was, that was in conjunction with going on strike at the Herald. And so I said, well, okay, I'm, uh, I'm finally going to do what I've always wanted to do, which is become a professional writer of books. Like many members of the Champlain Society, you're particularly fascinated with explorers. Uh, what what inspires you to write about explorers? Yeah, I've done five books about explorers. And the thing of it is, I think in its simplest form, if you look at it as a writer, what characters are interesting, the, the key thing is you want an obsessive hero or heroine. Mm. And it's that obsession and that meets with resistance and yet the refusal to stop 
that's the uh, and, and you find that in the explorers so they're all uh, you know they're all obsessed or they wouldn't be doing crazy things like running around at the top of the world risking their lives <laughs> yes. right so that's I think it's that obsession yeah and once I started with John Ray you see I, I, I thought I was going to be a cool, hip, contemporary writer, but it was like history came down and grabbed me and, and took me off. And I've been, uh, I was always interested in history. I mean, when I went to Ryerson here, I, I, I doubled up on Canadian history courses. So, uh, yeah, that was always part and parcel of who I was, and I did a, a lot of reading in history, but then I really went down the history rabbit hole, if you will. Let's wrap it up with these uh, Scots. Uh, what is your prediction for the, the the Scottish mindset or the Scottish presence in Canada in the f- years to come? What's your sense? Well, you know, I wrote something uh, that, that, that in my little world kind of went viral, which is, Let, let's invite Scotland to join Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I got a heck of a lot of backing for that idea, um, which would be a kind of terrific. I mean, Scotland would be the third largest province. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I made a whole case in, in the Globe and Mail. It's worth, it's worth thinking about. <clears throat> Last question. Um, how do you take your whiskey? Is it uh, with ice, with water, or do you just have it straight up? Uh, straight up for me. And do you like your whiskey with lots of peat or no peat? Oh, absolutely. I'm a peaty guy. So all the you way. like you like the the Scotch of the west part of the uh, the island of Isla, which is where a lot of Magugans are from. The, the uh, you know Lagavulin, Ardbeg, uh, Lafroig, uh, Bomore. Those are my scotches. Those are your scotches. Well, I simply want to tell our listeners that I'm wearing a tartan uh, on this special. Uh, recording. Very and nice. Kendall, how about you? we dedicate this podcast to your grand-mère Céline Pelletier <laughs> and my great-grandma <laughs> Margaret Patterson. <laughs> Très bien. Bonne idée, là. Formidable. <laughs> nice talking to you. Thanks, Patrice. That was Ken McGugan, author of The Flight of the Highlanders and The Making of Canada. It is published by in the Patrick Crean Editions, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our, our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 5th, 2020 and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.